Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account. Welcome to a Kindling podcast, Your Family, Your Money. I'm Georgina Dent. And I'm Caitlin Fitzsimmons. We're two mums with young families and we want to help all families understand money better. It is so closely linked with, with all of the things that we do, whether that is, you know, where we live, how we live, how we look after our children, where they go to school, how we spend our holidays. It's, it's so closely linked with all of those decisions. And I think that empowering people to, to be comfortable talking about money is so important. It's true. It's one of those big taboos. People hate talking about it, but especially for couples, it's like you, you really have to get on the same page about it. Otherwise, it's not going to work. And I think that the way families manage their money is incredibly important to their, to their security and to their, their happiness. Over the past nine episodes, we've tried to uncover ways to cope with the modern pressures of money and how they affect your family. This is the last show in the series, but in case you haven't heard all the episodes, they're in your favourite pod provider and in the Kindling app. It's been great to be able to share ideas and answer some of the questions that have come from you. In this last episode, we're covering money in perspective, how to deal with problem behaviours with money and the age-old debate, does money buy happiness? I've been really looking forward to uh, this episode, not because it's the last one, um, but because the subject matter is something I love to talk about. There's a little bit of heavy material in the beginning of the episode, but I think if you stick with us, uh, that's worthwhile. And then we get to some really fun discussion about how you can use money to make yourself happier. If you have any feedback on this series, feel free to drop us an email podcast at kindling.com.au. And we do have one final question from a listener today. Kelly from Bendigo in Victoria has written, I want to help with how to deal with the pressures on young families from outside influences of must-haves. For example, branded clothing, new toys, fancy homes, nice cars. Do you have any tips on balancing the needs and the wants, not only in a financial aspect, but in a moral sense too? I think that's probably an issue that many parents will relate to because I think as human beings we are conditioned to want to fit in and be liked and and I think that's where a lot of those sorts of things about what clothes you wear and what house you live in and what sort of car you drive, it can be problematic because, you know, we know that finance is a real source of stress. And I think that if you are putting extra pressure on your family's budget because you are trying to keep up with the Joneses, then ultimately that's not particularly helpful for you or anybody in your family. I suppose my advice is to get really clear with with your own, you know, whoever you share a house with, get clear with them about what's important to you. Um, I think that if you have a plan, it's a lot easier to not get caught up in, do we need to have a new this? Do we need to buy new clothes? Do we need to do that? Um, I think sort of trying to be a bit prepared and have a budget can be helpful. And I think children really learn from what their parents do, not just what they say. So you need to be modelling the behaviour that you want uh, it is a real issue. I, I know my daughter said to me recently that there are some kids in her year that only want to play with you if you've brought a toy to school. And I don't let my children bring toys to school. They've certainly got toys, but 
I think taking them to school is just an opportunity to lose them or lose bits of them. So I, I discourage that. And so we had a conversation about it. And, you know, I, I said that I, I didn't think that real friends would only be wanting to play with someone because there's kind of a shiny new object to play with. And she agreed with me. And she said that her closest friends aren't like that and that they'll share the, the toys and uh, if there are any or they, you know, they don't need to, to have them. And so I think having being able to have those sort of conversations and asking what they think about it uh, is, uh, is really valuable as well. And from a moral perspective, I think consumerism and materialism are increasingly being examined. I am seeing more and more on my social media feeds people wanting to push back on that, you know, pushing back on needing to have new things all the time. And I think that there is a financial component to doing that, but there is also an ethical component when you think about the the footprint that you're leaving here and and the footprint that you're leaving via your children because if if you model the sort of behaviour where getting new things is really important, then they're likely to follow that. Um, and so I think it's a great question, actually, because it shows that, you know, Kelly, in your mind, you're thinking about the bigger picture. And I think that doing that in itself is quite helpful because it makes you stop and think about the sorts of things that you're buying and why you're buying them. And that process is, is going to be useful. And I think you'll find the the rest of this episode really interesting as well because, you know, we'll we'll talk about how you can spend money to make you happy and what sort of things that people do spend money on that don't actually pay that dividend. But right now, I thought we should start with the the, the heavier stuff of the kind of behaviours that people can have when they're unhappy with their life or dealing with significant stress. And there are lots of ways that people try to cope with that. And some of these are positive, like you might talk to a friend or you might do exercise to relieve the stress or you know take a, a nice bath. But the, the sad reality is that often the coping behaviours are destructive or what psychologists would call maladaptive. Uh, and, you know, I, I've noticed that it often involves spending money. So, you know, I consider this a personal finance issue just as much as superannuation or mortgages. Uh, so, you know, examples would be shopping addiction, you know, what people call retail therapy, which is a term I really dislike, or problem gambling. Have you had any experience with uh, either yourself or people in your life kind of spending money in different ways to try to cope with stress and that making the problem worse? Not in a really destructive manner, but I think, I mean, I always remember my husband flattered with a girl in uni and her, she had a little line that she used to use, which was, if it makes you happy, it's a bargain. And we always joke about that because I think there is so much around about that notion of retail therapy and that spending money can make things better. And look, in some instances, you know, Buying a new outfit if you've got an important job interview coming up or there's something happening and that is going to contribute positively to that experience, then I think you can have a look at it and say, well, then that probably is valuable. But I think if if you are buying something every time that you're feeling depressed about something or if you are buying things with your head in the sand because it's just too scary to actually stop and look at the credit card statement, then I think, you know, it will be daunting, but it is worthwhile to stop and examine that sort of behaviour because it 
it can be really destructive. I interviewed a psychologist about this once and she said that what happens is that you spend the money and you get a rush of cortisol. So it gives you this fleeting sense of relief, a bit of a high. So it does work in the very short term, but it doesn't work for very long. And what can happen is that the behaviour can escalate over time. This is what happens with any addictive behaviour. And that means that you'll need to spend more or make bigger bets when you're gambling to, to get that same sense of relief. And the other thing she talked about uh, was that it can be associated with secrecy, that this is, this is something you need to try to keep from your loved ones. And, you know, I, I find that really interesting. Uh, I think a lot of people do spend secretly and, you know, try to hide that from their partner. And I'm in two minds about that. I think that there there should be a level of autonomy where you don't have to run every purchase by your partner. You don't have to get permission to buy something. But I don't think it should be secret. I think if you're if you're keeping it secret, that 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 indicates that there's a, there's a sense of shame about it. And I think when you extrapolate out, and and this is something that I certainly have have read about and have known people in this situation that. When you do hit a point, and I know this from my own experience, that when you are in a position where it feels, you know, scary financially, there is shame associated with that. It's not something that you're going to openly tell everyone about. You know, I think it's the reason why, you know, we saw this particularly in the global financial crisis. There were a lot of private schools that ended up having to use debt collectors to chase up fees because there were a lot of families that just could not make those payments. And it was too scary for them to say, actually, we've got to take our kids out of this school because we can't afford it. And I think, you know, that's an extreme example, but there are lots of instances where, and it goes to sort of Kelly's question earlier about getting into the habit of having living a certain lifestyle. And then, you know, if someone gets made redundant and this happens, you know, then suddenly you might have to change that lifestyle, but that can be daunting, I think, to actually implement. And I think that I've been thinking lately about how money is something that we are often very private about. And I think there's value absolutely in discretion, particularly in the realm of finance. But I also think that in some ways that discretion can be damaging because I think it prevents us from being really open about what our true financial position is and what that stress is if if there is stress. And I think if it's uh, secrets from your partner it can be very damaging to a relationship as well. I actually read a study from 2016 which found that more than one in two Australians have deceived a partner, family or friends about money issues and that the stress of raising a family contributes to this. So two out of three people with children living at home hide debt and spending from their loved ones compared with less than one in two people without children at home. And it's worse for mothers. Uh, Seven out of ten women with children in the household admit to secrecy overspending. So what's the solution? Well, the part about it being mothers who, who are hiding money more doesn't surprise me because we know that mums control, I think it's about 85% of household expenditure. They are the ones that are paying the bills, they're doing the groceries. And so I think in that way, they are more often aware of exactly what expenses 
are required and what isn't. And so I think that there is a level... I mean, it, it upsets me to think that there are so many women out there who are in a position where they can't disclose to their partner or their loved ones the true situation because it's really difficult to see how that is going to end well. I think it can also be, uh, you know, if you're if you're buying things to cope with stress and things that you maybe are not in the family budget but you're trying to kind of go for that retail therapy hit, you know, perhaps the parent who stays at home most with the children, which is usually the mother, perhaps they feel more of that stress and carry more of that burden. Yeah, I, I mean, I think that if, if retail therapy is one of the driving problems, I think that's a really big issue. When I was contemplating the secrecy initially, I was thinking more that they're not telling their partner how tight the budget is and, and, and how you know, much pressure they're feeling each month to meet the expenses. I think that that's quite separate to there being sort of wanton spending that is creating a financial problem mm. rather than just solving it. Because I can certainly relate to the the pressure of when there are months where there might be the car registration is due or there's, you know, the swimming lessons need to be paid for. Some months there are more expenses than others. And in those times it is... It's not necessarily something that you openly tell people, I'm feeling really pressured this month because things are tight. Um, but that is quite different, I think, to if I was going out and spending money that we didn't have. Mm. Or placing it on a bed at the races, for example, which is, uh, you know, what this psychologist said is that when she deals with her female clients, a lot of them are... Uh, going down the shopping addiction route, whereas for the men, it might be the same sort of cause of, you know, the same sort of stress, but things like gambling might might come to the fore. And also, you know, drinking, overeating, there's, you know, lots of different things that are not financial as well that can come into play there. She recommends that, that what you need to do about it is, well, firstly, to try to deal with the underlying cause of the stress. Um, and we talked in an early episode about uh, financial stress. We, we mentioned uh, the National Debt Helpline, which can put you in touch with a financial counsellor. Uh, she also recommends practising mindfulness techniques uh, so that you gain awareness of your behaviour and you know what triggers you and you can develop a plan to counteract that. Uh, and it's just important to know that you're always going to have thoughts, but your thoughts don't have to control your actions. So for problem gambling, um, you can talk to a group like Gamblers Anonymous or you can get counselling for all sorts of these things from Relationships Australia. Uh, and if your partner has these behaviours, you can try to convince them to get help. Um, but I think it's also important to say that you can't control them, but you can take steps to protect the family, to make sure that savings aren't eroded and that debt doesn't accumulate and that it's important to talk to someone about doing that. The key issue, I suppose, is taking stock and attempting to take control because, you know, if you are in the midst of a situation where things are out of hand, either because, you know, there's a gambling problem, there's a money problem, sticking your head in the sand is, is definitely going to make it worse. 
Um, and so by taking steps and thinking how you can get support and how you can map a plan forward is probably a really important thing to do. You're listening to the podcast, Your Family, Your Money. In this episode, which is the final episode, we're talking about money in perspective. Still to come, we'll be having a chat about whether money makes you happy. But before we do, we've got one last question from Maureen from Virginia in Brisbane. She writes, My daughter will go to school on two buses when she starts high school, and I feel it would be a good idea for her to have a phone. It seems all phones these days are smartphones. What are the best ways to keep the cost down? Well, it is a great question. I think I've mentioned before, my eldest is seven, so we are thankfully not there yet, Um, but I certainly can relate to Maureen's question. What age a child needs a phone is is hard to answer. I think a, a number of Australians agree from various surveys that between 13 and 15 is the sweet spot where it is appropriate um, for them to have it. But there are also about a quarter of Australians think between 10 and 12 is the appropriate age. Where do you stand, Caitlin? I'm kind of in denial about this, my kids being a little bit younger as well. I mean, obviously, I didn't have a phone when I had to catch two buses to go to high school. And I was fine. There were there were just rules and set around that. But, you know, times have changed and technology, you know, can make it that little bit safer. So I understand. I think when a child is becoming independent enough to catch uh, public transport on their own, then maybe it means that they're independent enough to have a phone. I would say, though, that not all phones are smartphones. You can still buy a dumb phone, mm. <laughs> so to speak. I don't know if they market them as dumb phones. No, but you can buy like an, an old school Nokia that's exactly the same as it was 15 years ago, except they come in kind of bright colours and so on, for example. And, you know, that might be a way to to keep the cost down that, yes, it is. this is a safety tool but it's not a way for you to spend all the money, uh, family's money on data. Um, and, and look, we the all... The time, the time. Like the thing that worries me most is teenagers spending all their time on their phones as a, you know, kind of as their recreation, as they're socialising. You know, I think there's a, a lot of... It makes me very uncomfortable, actually. I agree. And I do have to say that I don't think it's just teenagers who get sucked into their phones becoming their worlds. I think it's probably an issue for a lot of us um, becoming more and more dependent on it. I would say that prepaid SIMs are the right way to go, particularly initially when a child first has a phone. I think involving them in the process of seeing what calls cost and what data costs is important in terms of them fostering their own independence and being responsible for that. I think we've probably all heard horror stories from a parent that we know that we work with you know, the data costs can add up and it can be horrific. So I think that is the issue to sort of be really conscious of from the from the very beginning. And not just data, but uh, app purchases and in-app purchases and so on. And look, I know I've got six-year-olds, you know, I've got a little bit of uh, time and I'm sure my kids are going to have phones when the when the time comes because that seems to be the, the way of the world uh, these days. I think that it is also worth looking into family plans where uh, 
allowances for various things can be shared amongst all members of the family? Absolutely. And, you know, may, maybe my idea of a dumb phone, maybe you can park that for when the child uh, loses or breaks their, their fancy smartphone and uh, this can be the replacement until they've earned back the money to, to pay for a proper replacement. There are insurance policies um, that you can get for phones, but don't just look at what's offered by the manufacturer or by the telco because there are specialist mobile insurers out there who actually offer better value. So, Caitlin, let's talk about the big question. Does money make you happy? Yay, I'm glad we're finally up to this part. I've been looking forward to it because it's such a fun discussion. So, of course, we're always told that money doesn't make you happy. And to some extent, that is true. But there is also really interesting research that's out there on how some ways of spending your money make you happier than other ways of spending your money. So that's what I want to delve into. Is it also true, though, that there is a point at which, you know, if if someone is living beyond a certain, you know, underneath a certain point, it does actually impact your happiness. Definitely. I mean, we've talked a lot about financial stress. And yeah, if you don't have enough for the basics of life, or if you're kind of dealing with debt and, and slipping further and further back, then that can, you know, stress can make you unhappy, it can make you fight with your partner, it can make you very anxious. Once you've got enough for the necessities of life, the economics research shows that you don't get that much happier by by accruing more and more money or wealth. But this is beyond that. So assume you've got those enough for the basics. Mm-hmm. And with your discretionary spending money, how can you spend it to get the biggest bang for your buck when it comes to happiness? Do you have any ideas? In my experience, I love paying to do things that are memorable. So I I really enjoy it when my husband and I go out for dinner. You know, sometimes we'll go out to the the cheap tie around the corner. Sometimes, you know, if it's a special occasion, we'll go somewhere nicer. But that's one category of spending that makes me really happy because it's more than just the food we're eating. It is, it's the evening and it's, you know, the, the time and emotional reward that you get from spending time with someone well, that's uh, that's interesting because you, you're tapping into one of the aspects of, of the research. So what the research says is that buying things does not make you happy. It's not saying buying things is bad. You know, you might get some utility out of it, but it doesn't measurably make you happier. But buying experiences is one of the two things you can do that does make you happier. You know, a few of the reasons for this are, okay, so it's social. You know, you're not just going around to, out to the restaurant by yourself. You're, you're, you're spending the time with your husband and that's meaningful. Uh, and, you know, a lot of the experiences that you might pay for do involve spending time with friends and family. Another reason for it is the kind of beauty of hindsight. So just say you spent a few thousand dollars on a new TV. You've got the, you know, the kind of period where you're looking forward to it. But most of that is maybe kind of impatience or frustration. And then you get the TV and it, it feels good. Then the experience of watching it is you're sitting at home in a dark room watching a box 
maybe you know there is some good TV out there. I know, I know that. Oh, so there I, is. <laughs> I'm exaggerating, um, but you know, not a lot. And then you know, the a new model comes out. You know, suddenly your TV is not the latest and greatest. Maybe your neighbour has a better TV. You start to kind of you've got the TV sitting in front of you all this time, reminding you of its faults. What happens if you spend the same amount of money on, say, a holiday? Well, you've got the time before the holiday where you're really looking forward to it and that that kind of, you get some peak happiness right there. Then you're on the holiday and it's not quite as good as you'd hoped, maybe. You know, reality intervenes. It rains on the day you're going to the beach and so on. But you're still out there in the world, spending time with other people, seeing new things. And then after you get back from the holiday, you can remember it any way you like. You don't have the reality sitting there in front of you, uh, you know, annoying, niggling you with it. You might talk to someone else about their holiday and you hear about their holiday and they hear about your holiday, but you can't really accurately compare which one was better if one person went to Fiji and the other person went to New York. You've just got your own unique experience of it. And actually, like, I think there was some research into honeymoons and it said that people's own memory of their own, of their honeymoon improved over time. So by the time, you know, by the time a few months had passed, by the time a year has passed, by the time 20 years has passed, the, the honeymoon just gets better and better in your hindsight. <laughs> well, that's a terrific investment right there, isn't it? I think it is. <laughs> it gets better in time. So you said that spending money on experiences is one of the um, ways that you can spend money that makes you happy. What is the second? I reckon you can guess. So anything else that makes you happy? I think it could be spending money on other people. It is. When it is. You... You're so wise, Georgina. I know. I know. <laughs> so what the research says here, I mean, it's it's a little bit intuitive that it, it gives you pleasure to spend money on other people more so than yourself. But the research actually shows this really strongly and it's it's quite interesting. It doesn't seem to matter whether it's a good cause or not. You get the same hit of happiness if I buy you a coffee or if I give the same amount of money to a charity or if I give you $100, which I'm not going to do, by the way, or if I give $100 to charity, which I might. It's still, you just get that same little hit of happiness. And actually, the whole point about meeting the material needs first doesn't negate that. So they've, they've done a, a test where... They gave money to undergraduate students in Canada and they had to either spend it on themselves or someone else. And it was, you know, some people they gave $5 and some people they gave, you know, 20 but it wasn't big sums of money. And then they also did the same thing in Uganda where a lot of people are really struggling to, you know, provide the necessities of life. And they gave the same equivalent in Ugandan currency of, you know, the same spending um, power and asked them to, um, some groups, some people were asked to spend it on themselves and some people on others. And in both Canada and Uganda, the people who spent it on other people were happier, reported more happiness and satisfaction at the end of the day than the people who'd spent it on themselves. So I thought that was 
you know, really interesting to put some science around something that, you know, I might have suspected but uh, couldn't really prove. It is compelling to think about. And I just wonder, though, does it work? So if, say, for example, my husband wanted something that cost $100 and I wanted something that cost $100, would we both be happier if we went out and bought the thing for each other rather than buying it for ourselves? So if I bought something for him and he bought something for me, we would be better, we would be happier. I think you probably would, um, but you'd have to have to feel like you'd made a, a real decision to do that, that it wasn't like this kind of behind the scenes swap of like, oh, I'm going to go buy that for you if you buy that for me, because... That might negate the happiness. I, well, I just feel like, you know, that's kind of cheating. You're, you're really buying it for yourself and you found some tricky way to organise it. But if you truly believe that you're you're spending that money on the other person, then I think you're going to get that that sense of satisfaction. It is nice to receive gifts as well, isn't it? Though it's nice to feel that the other person cares about you and has thought about you and is trying to make you happy. And and that's probably you know they say the thought is what counts. And yeah, sometimes that can be a little cheesy or glib, but it is also true as well, don't you think? I do. And I think, though, that there is more value. I think when you buy something for somebody else, even when it is something quite little, it does make you feel good in a way that you don't if if you're buying something for yourself. So we read uh, every now and then these stories about people who've won millions in lotteries and so on, and then they were perfectly happy before, but they wind up broken, miserable. And I always wonder, you know, how can that be? Uh, And it seems in most cases there are two things. First, they let it change their life. They gave up things that actually gave their life structure and meaning. Mm -hmm. And secondly, they used it to buy things and they end up in a house full of things, but without the social networks and the meaning around them. And often have, you know, when people know you've got that money, it can change the way people behave to you as well. So I find that a real cautionary tale of, you know, be careful what you wish for. So what that says to me is just to be happy with what you do have and to to make sure you don't let go of what's important. Well, that's it for this series. I'm Georgie. I'm Caitlin. We hope you found this podcast series helpful. If you'd like to hear more from either of us, I write for Fairfax and for Women's Agenda. And I'm the editor of Money for the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. And you can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Caitlin Fitzsimmons. Your Family, Your Money is brought to you by Westpac Bump Savings Account as part of Westpac's 200th year celebration. If your baby was born in 2017, Westpac will deposit $200 into a Westpac Bump Savings Account, which they can withdraw when they turn 16. You can open the account online today. Visit westpac.com.au forward slash dearbump. Account must be opened and your ID verified by 31 May 2018. The $200 is limited to one per child and will be forfeited if the account is closed before their 16th birthday. Other T's and C's and eligibility criteria apply. Read the T's and C's available at the Westpac website before deciding if the product is right for you.